Hi, this is Peter, and I want to take a moment to thank you for subscribing to the Church of the City podcast. We truly do enjoy being able to share the message with you each week. The other reason why I'm hijacking this podcast is to let you know that due to technical difficulties, we were unable to capture the first few minutes of this Sunday's message. And for that, I want to apologize. In just a moment, we will pick up the message at about three to four minutes into it, and I trust that you will still enjoy it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the person that other people want to be around. And so the question that we keep coming back to today is, what makes me worthy? Why would I be, why would I be accepted by God, or why would I be worthy? And so our passage today, if you've been journeying along with us in the book of Hebrews, our passage today helps us find answers to this question. Because the challenge for us is we wade through this uh, most Old Testament of New Testament books. This is the one that uh, you will, if you don't know the Old Testament, you'll probably find it the most baffling to just read it on your own because there's just so much there that is connected to Old Testament imagery. But there is images and references that are foreign to, to us as a modern audience. First in chapters 2, verse 17, and, and chapters uh, 3, verse 1, the preacher of Hebrews calls Jesus a high priest. He says, this is, Jesus is a high priest. And then this really ramps up, this idea, in chapter 4, verse 14, that Sonia just read to us together. And so let's read it again. Let's remind ourselves of this passage. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help, to help in the time of need. You know, we got to go back to, um, in order to understand the high priest of it, we got to go back to the book of Leviticus. You really want to read this week if you want to do a little bit of homework. Because uh, in reality, you'll probably only hear about three or four sermons on the book of Leviticus in your entire life. So if you're dependent on, uh, on only the sermons, you'll never study, the, you'll never hear enough to understand it on your own. You need to read. You need to become a student of the Word. The, we're just a guide to you to help stimulate you to become the student of the Word for yourself, the Bible. But if you're going to go back into this book, into those chapters, you're going to discover more about the high priest and his significance to the Day of Atonement. The immediate reaction of most people, though, as they read through this book of Leviticus is to begin to go, what does all these sacrifices mean? What is all this minutia? What, does it even matter that I know this stuff? And we put off and we, we begin to move towards a, de a general disregard. We believe that such study of passages like this, of Leviticus and all the sacrificial system, well, that's best left for those pastors out there. Or those who like, you know, those weird people who really like theology. That's, that's best left. Normal Christians don't read this kind of thing. Don't know this kind of thing. And the rebuke to this error, it's an error. It's a significant error, is, is in this statement that without understanding these texts, you will never understand why, what the, the preacher of Hebrews is saying when he says that you, are, you are, are to have confidence in your life and that you're not alone. 
If you were to, someone to ask you why you have confidence in your faith and why you're not alone, unless you understand this, this idea, you'll have difficulty understand, explaining it to others. You cannot understand why you are accepted by God until you understand the reasons for the sacrificial system and this concept of a high priest. Above all, the, the details of the sacrificial system actually point forward to something better. They point forward, honestly, to Jesus, who fulfills as the, he brings the complete fulfillment as the perfect sacrifice, as, and also he is the great high priest. That's the, uh, that's the word. It's not just he's a high priest. He is the great high priest. And so a little aside for those of you who are uh, embarking in yearly Bible reading plans. You're probably, if you're not there, in a few weeks from now, you're going to be hitting Leviticus and Numbers. And you're going to be working through these passages. And we get bogged down in all, this, all these details of, uh, of laws. But years ago, I heard a sermon from one of my favorite preachers. His name is Alistair Begg. And he describes three things about the sacrificial system that we got to get, that we got to understand. And there were, it's been so helpful for me that I just want to pass it on to you today. Like when you're, when you're kind of feeling stuck, he, he reminds us of three things that uh, as you read through are so important. And it's really this. First off, the sacrificial system, it reveals this truth, to let everyone know that forgiveness is costly. That forgiveness is costly. There is a cost to uh, being forgiven. And most of the time you see that in the lives of animals that were sacrificed. Secondly, we find that we, there's a, this, uh, the sacrificial system is to let everyone know that there is punishment due to death. That the punishment due to death is, is due to sin is death. Let me say that again rightly. To let everyone know that the punishment due to sin is death. And three, to make absolutely clear that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Now, we, now that's sometimes not enough. You might say, I'm going to forget that. But what, what made an impact on me was that he internalized these points. And I began to read it in this way. I remembered as, as this, every time I read Leviticus and Numbers, this is to show me how costly forgiveness is. You see the little, the, how, how much it changes? This is to make clear to me that the punishment for my sin is death. And that there is no doubt, number three, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so with this as our, our background, if we were to understand, even in a small way, that these are the reasons for the sacrificial system and why this, this character called the high priest is there, we now have the context a little bit to begin to study through Hebrews chapter 4. A few reasons why Jesus is the great high priest and what this means for us today. And the first thing is this, is that the author in verse 14 establishes why Jesus is great and he is great in his divinity. He is God. First off, as we read verse 14, Jesus is named explicitly 
as the, as the high priest, the great high priest. And he's clearly differentiated from the, the past high priests in this way. He is, what? The son of God. No other priest was ever uh, claimed in this way. The past human, they could lay no cl- uh, divine claim. They were chosen by God, but it always says from among the people. And here, so here our pastor encourages believers to hold fast in their confession. You better remember what's happening here. They are, they are Christians who are under increasing persecution. They are struggling in their faith. And so there is an encouragement here for uh, them not to let go of their confession, to keep confessing. What? First off, confessing Jesus of Nazareth, that he is this historical figure. And he actually existed and he, he's, he, he lived on this earth and that he is real and that he is, what? The son of God. And then secondly, that he didn't just live on this earth, but he is the center of, this, of the gospel message. He is the center of the gospel. In Romans 10.9, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. Okay? And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's, isn't that the gospel? Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is not only the savior of this world, but you surrender your life, he's the Lord of your life, and if you confess it with your mouth, if you pray it out and you confess it before people through your, through your words and eventually through baptism, it says you will be saved. And this is the message that is at the heart of the Christian faith and what believers have been confessing for centuries upon centuries, often in the face of so much persecution. And so first off, Jesus is great in his divinity. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 15, we read that he talks about Jesus being great in his humanity. We've heard this before. Maybe if you've been in church before, you hear that God, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully man or fully human. Okay? But Jesus is great in his humanity. Here we're reminded that, G, that although he's divine, he's also fully human. He was a fully human high priest. And his humanity is evidenced by the fact that he, was, he faced temptations in this world. Isn't that the, one of the most human of experiences, that you face temptations in your life? And it, it, he faced temptations to sin just like us. Why do we need a high priest who is, un, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Jesus could not have fulfilled his mission of being the perfect sacrifice for sins unless he also identified with us in our temptations, and yet he did not sin. Jesus understands all the, the, the challenges that you are facing in reality, not just hypothetically. He understands them in reality. He was the only one who did not yield to temptation. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, he confronts those who are kind of dismissive of Jesus or uh, saying that, you know, because he was God, it was pretty easy for him to, uh, to uh, resist sin or temp- resist temptation and, they, and that it is easy for him to, uh, because he was God. And he says this, and I want to read this quote to you. 
He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in some sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus is the only one who understands fully our temptations and what it means to resist fully. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you struggling with the idea in your life that God doesn't really understand your circumstances today? Sometimes we come to prayer, we pray to God, we go, God, I know you're God way up there. You might never have experienced what I'm facing today. This is meant to comfort us to no end. You know, last week, Matt kind of ended the sermon with a warning that God, the God of this universe, sees all. And he sees everything about you, and he sees through you, right? It's kind of like, for most of us, especially if you struggle with sin this week, it's like, I don't want God to see me. I don't want to, I'll be lowering my head this week. I'll be standing there, and I don't really want God to see me. And so this is the, uh, this is the sharp truth that's really honest. That's the truth. God sees, it, sees us all. But the good news, this is what is like, it's like a soothing oil for your soul today is that God, who sees all of this stuff, gives you a mediator. He gives you one that uh, is, stands in, your, in, in between for you. One that doesn't look at you with condemnation, but he actually looks at you with sympathy. And he gives you compassion because he understands what it means to, to face temptation. He desires to help you resist through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is why Jesus is, he's not only great in his divinity, but he's great in his humanity. And the third verse in 16 here, it says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And so we find this, that Jesus is great in his sufficiency. We get, we're given the attitude or posture on which we can come to God. It says, therefore, because we have Jesus, our great high priest, who is both fully divine, he's both fully uh, human in his resistance to sin, we can come to him, it's right here, we can approach God, not in terror or shame or guilt, but in confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence that you're, you've lived a good life this week? Confidence that uh, your good stuff that you did this week outweighed your bad? You know? No. Confidence comes that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. That alone. That's what it's meant to say. We can come to our king and at his throne we find mercy. We can put ourselves at the feet of, the, of this king and whatever the sins are in our past and our present, whatever they are, Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. That is good news. The human high priest could only bring a blood sacrifice 
that could postpone wrath for one year. He had to do it all over again. Every year, they had to come back. You had, you had the Day of Atonement. You had to come back, pay, the, the, pay the, uh, the blood sacrifice, and that would cover the sins for another year. And God's wrath would be postponed. But in contrast to this, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient because he eternally covers not only your sins from past, present, future, for the sins of humanity. It's sufficient to cover anyone who would believe. And so friends, if you are believing in Jesus today, do we believe this to be true? Do we believe in the sufficiency of Jesus? Or are we living in such a way that our, our salvation is somehow still based on how good we behaved this week? That we, the ways we live in unbelief are many. One of the songs that we sing in this community is uh, that we, the line in is that we, we serve, we, we've worked our fingers down to the bone, Right? And that's a, a way we can serve motivated by, to God. We can serve God. You can come to church. You can do all manner of religious things. But you can serve with the, motivated that you are somehow, through all these good things you're doing, that you're made more justified by God in those things. We can believe the unbelief, the gospel, in that we don't forgive ourselves for the sins, the things that we do in the, we've done in the past. Now, here, listen to this. This is so key. If the truth of the gospel is this, that no amount of good that you do in your life is enough to make you justified before God, understand this, that no amount of good could ever give you entrance into God's presence. That's what we talk about, salvation by faith alone, okay? If that's true, then the other end of the spectrum must be equally true as well, that God's wrath for whatever you've done or will do has been poured out on Jesus already. And that you no longer need to self-punish yourself. You don't need to come and like add more to the punishment in order to receive the mercy of God. God is not going to pour out further wrath on believers in him. Because you know what that would be? That would be unjust. It already says in his word that he has poured out the fullness of his wrath on Jesus. That would be like double punishment. And that would be unjust. And God is not unjust. That is what the word clearly says. The Bible says to us. And so this is a confidence. It's a sweet confidence that only that only people who have received the gospel and then repented of their sins can understand. And I, I say this because the, one of the charges is that for Christians is that we're extremely arrogant when we say God accepts us. Because that, and the confidence lies not in that we, uh, have, we could say that we've done anything at all to deserve God's uh, uh, gift of righteousness, but it's through Jesus' sufficiency that he is the perfect sacrifice and he is the great high priest and this has to sink into our bones. I don't know how else to say it. 
It has to, has to come in, in order to give us confidence when we say we're accepted before God. It's because of Jesus Christ alone. So now that in these three verses, the preacher of Hebrews establishes that he is both perfect sacrifice, he establishes he's the perfect high priest, the consistency of this message of Hebrews begins to shine through. Because remember what uh, Matt's kind of led us through over the last week. Jesus is what? The greater, what did we start with? Jesus is greater than, anyone remember? Moses. Moses. There was one before that. Angels, right? Moses. Then Joshua. He said Jesus is the greater Joshua. And then if someone was out there and they were putting their trust, if they revered the high priest and Aaron was the one that they put forward, what this author is saying, Aaron, let me tell you about the greater Aaron. Let me tell you that someone who's better than Aaron, the first high priest who was established by God. And that's what we're going to do in, the, in just the next few verses, first 10, 10 verses here. We're going we're gonna to learn and discover why Jesus is the greater Aaron. He's the greater high priest. Let's read together verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for themselves but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so first off, in order for Jesus to be established as the greater, we have to, what the author does is he says, let me tell you about the typical. Let me tell you about the high priest, the one that you know, the typical high priest. Like the human high priest, Jesus, though, is appointed by God, sorry, I'm going to read this. So if we want to go back, we got, to, we got to see this typical. And so the preacher here in Hebrews first describes this human high priest. And what we find first is that God's sovereignty is being clearly stated, clearly evident in the appointment of the high priest. The high priest was chosen by the people. We said that earlier. How is he chosen? You may not know this because, again, it's in those, word, those words of Leviticus. But he was chosen from among men, and then they would cast lots. What's casting lots? They would kind of roll the dice. Uh, and uh, from amongst all these priests, and whatever the, the dice would land on, they believed that that was the, the choice of God. That's how, they, that's how they chose. They believed in God's sovereignty to that point that when they rolled the dice, he, he's the one. And so the, but this is a, a pretty... So they trust in this. So his job, what's the job of the, of the high priest? His job is to act for the people. He was, he was never meant to represent God to the people. There are religions in this world that have sometimes human beings set up to represent God to the people. But this is not what the high priest was. The high priest was to represent the people to God. He was to act for the people. He offered sacrifices, he burnt incense, he offered gifts, and it was all on behalf of the people. The people could not approach God on their, on their own. 
There was a barrier. There, were, there was sin. They could not enter. They could enter the temple to a certain point. They could enter another room. But this Holy of Holies, this is where the ark, the presence of God was, they could not enter in. No one could, or they would die. So once a year, this high priest, who was sinful, and he was required to, before he went into that, into that room, he was required to offer sacrifices for his own sin first. And they even put sometimes, there's sort of a tradition out there that he, they put bells on his coat and that they put a rope around his uh, leg. So that's not found in the Bible, okay? So that's sort of a Jewish tradition. It kind of makes sense, though. Like, if the guy went in and he hadn't done all the preparations properly, he would be struck dead. And so they needed, you couldn't just go in and get, get the guy. You had to pull him out somehow. And so this idea that there was sin, and he had the sin, the, the human high priest had to, uh, was imperfect. He had to uh, bring sacrifice for himself. His imperfection and imperfect sacrifices meant that the effects of the, of the, uh, the sacrifices were just temporary. They postponed the wrath of God. But then in verse 2, we find this most interesting thing, that it shows that the high priest was an understanding representative. He was meant to deal gently with people, not with those who just disdained God, but those who were, it says, lacked knowledge. They, they were ignorant. Maybe there were people, maybe people coming into the community who didn't understand all the laws. So to be gentle with the wayward, with, gentle with the ignorant. But he also talked about those who, uh, who were wayward. And this idea is carried that someone who has knowledge but doesn't put it into practice. Anyone out here ever done that? You might have the knowledge, but you don't always put it into practice. So the high priest is encouraged, is said to be the one who gently comes alongside of people who are ignorant and wayward, who sin, and that he is the compassionate high priest. He could humbly deal with the sin of the people because there was sin in his own life. So if this is the typical, these first four verses, the preacher then continues on and he brings Jesus forward for comparison, reading in verse 5 and 6. So then, so also Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, Together, today I have begotten you. As, it also, as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, like this human high priest, it says Jesus was appointed by God for the job. Jesus doesn't take the role on. He doesn't say, I want to be exalted. I'm going to take this role. No, it says that he was appointed by God, uh, and he obediently accepts the role. And then at the end of verse 6, we have this curious reference to Jesus as high priest in this order of priesthood. And you would think... That they would say, and to the order of Aaron. Aaron is like the first high priest. There's this line of, of respected high priest. And all of a sudden it says, to the order of Melchizedek. Who on earth is Melchizedek? Melchizedek has three verses in the entire Bible. Melchizedek is said in one of those places that he is greater than Abraham. Okay? Who is Melchizedek? Well, when God sets Melchizedek on the scene in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, 
we're told that uh, he is greater than Abraham. Abraham's nephew, Lot, has gotten himself in a whole lot of trouble. He's gone off. He's gotten himself captured. And he went off to find better land for his cattle. And in the process, Abraham needs to go and rescue Lot. And the five kings who are in this area, so you got to think of it like kind of like little regional kings. They kind of gather together. They, they meet up and they attack Abraham, who's trying to come and rescue. So they, there's kind of a war. And we don't really get an exact figure of how many people, how many people are in the army, but we know that Abraham has 300 men. And God gives Abraham this incredible, miraculous type victory in this situation. He's clearly outnumbered, outmatched, but God, Abraham overwhelms, and there's just this great a victory. And then this guy, Melchizedek, shows up, and he blesses Aaron, Abraham. We know nothing about this priest, this king, except he's a king of Salem, and then we're given his name. There's three places in the Bible that mention Melchizedek by name. Genesis 14, the book of Hebrews, and then one other place that describes how faithful God is, and then he compares it to in Psalm 110, and it speaks to Melchizedek in that spot. And I could spend an entire sermon trying to explain to you today what all the things about Melchizedek means. But really, we're going to actually get there. In, he shows back up. And so we're going to let Matt do most of the heavy lifting in this area, okay? But in order for us to get this, we've got to understand a couple things. Here's what I believe is necessary. Melchizedek is a foreign king. He's not a product of the lineage of Aaron. So when Jesus is said to be in the order of Melchizedek, I believe what is being said is that Jesus' priesthood is not being tied to some lineage or nationality. He's not just the high priest of the Israelites. He's a foreign high priest. Melchizedek wasn't a priest, it says, because his father was a priest. He was a priest by God's ordination. That's what it says there in Genesis. It says that he is the sovereignly appointed high priest of the most high God. In addition, Melchizedek has this really unique place that he is both king and priest. In Israelite, the king can't be the priest, and the priest can't be the king. But in this strange uh, relationship, we have the the priest and the king in one person. And let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is both the conquering king, and he is the great high priest. Over and over again, we see this in Scripture. And so we have a a clear, unmistakable message to anyone who puts their faith in religious leaders. And I think about this today. Like, are you somehow in any way putting your faith that your acceptance will be based on whether or not you have a great pastor or you attend a great church or any of this type of thing? uh, Maybe you've grown up in a family where your parents are believers, And we've said this before, like, are you living off the faith of your parents? Are you trusting, well, I came from great Christian parents, so they're, you know, I'm a a Christian. There is an unmistakable message that anyone who puts trust in religious 
leaders as mediators between them and God, it's a dangerous place. And so then the the author here says, let me tell you about the greater Aaron. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. He is the mediator to anyone from any background at any time. And as we close today, we we want to see one more reason why Jesus is greater. And it's found in verse 7 to 10. And it says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he heard it, and he heard because of his reverence. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he made he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by god a high priest after the order of melchizedek one more reason that jesus is greater he is the perfect high priest he moves from maybe you've been thinking man this is a pretty dense theological sermon you know i You can't really avoid it sometimes. You just got to go with what's written on the page, okay? But he moves from all the theological reasons why Jesus is greater, and he turns his eyes and he says, let me tell you about his earthly ministry. Jesus is one that he weeps a lot. You ever read the, if you read the gospel, Jesus always seems to be crying all the time. Like he's, he's sighing, he's compassionate, he's looking at people with compassion, and he, when he's crying out to God, it's, he's emotional, We're reminded that Jesus' time here on earth is not some piece of cake. He deeply feels for people. He deeply prays for people. He's heard from the Father because of his reverence, it says. He comes and he's reverent before God. And in verse 8, the author here explains that Jesus, he learned obedience through his sufferings. Even though he was God's son, he learns obedience through his sufferings. We, sh- we shouldn't think that he needed to learn obedience because he was in some way disobedient. No, what is being said is that he experienced trials related to human experiences. And he learned to obey the Father in them. Suffering taught Jesus how to submit to God's will perfectly. Suffering did this. And so it's fitting that the one who learned obedience through suffering would become the salvation, the eternal salvation to, the, to all who obey God and are called to hold fast in persecution. Whenever you're facing trials, you have Jesus there who has faced it on your behalf and he cares. And he calls you to not abandon the faith when it gets hard. Don't leave this behind. Don't stop confessing him just because the things that you're facing in your life are challenging. This is the encouragement. So what's meant to, what are we meant to do in response to a pretty hard, dense, this is a thing to think about today, a dense piece of scripture. In the beginning of the, of the sermon, I talked about the need for acceptance and validation. You know, like the gospel, according to Hebrews here, because okay, that's what it is. The gospel, according to Hebrews, says that, that it is only by placing faith in the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest that we are acceptable before God. Okay? 
Now, that could be a truth statement today. You could, you could say it, you're like, well, I affirm that in my head. But the question is, has, it, has that sunk down into your heart? The scriptures later on in Hebrews says that God can save to the uttermost, which means what keeps you from God is not your sin. Okay? Once you've, once you've repented, once you accept Jesus as both high priest and sacrifice of your sin, it's not your sin that keeps us from God. So often it's, it's two things. The things that keep us from God now so often are pride and unbelief. If you're uh, an irreligious person, maybe you're not buying this today, you're not quite sure where you are, an irreligious person so often says, I don't want God's authority in my life. I don't want to have to live by any set of rules or I'm a free person. I don't want Lord. So there's a pride there. But here's what they say. Religious people, they know they need God, but they don't think they really need to be saved. You know, my bad. My bad's not as bad. Look at, look at the guy down the street. Look at the guy sitting beside me today. They're, they think they can save, we think we can save ourselves sometimes. And both of these are forms of pride. And if it isn't pride that's holding us back from, from accepting all these things about Jesus as, as hybrids, it's unbelief that you don't believe that Jesus saves like he says he does. That he accepts you completely and unconditionally just as he said he would in Christ. And so this is the gospel prayer. This is the prayer that we need every day. In Christ, there is nothing that I can do that would make you love me more. But the other side is, nothing that I have done can make you love me less. That's the gospel prayer. It needs to ring out in our lives. The gospel is a gift righteousness. We receive it as a gift. If it comes any other way, like I got to do something, it becomes works righteousness, and that's false. And that's what it means to serve until your fingers are worn to the bone. We have no confidence in those places when we're working all the time. And I remind myself, because I, you know, I, really, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church. I grew up, like, Going all the way through high school, I had a period of rebellion, but I still felt so guilty because I knew what I was breaking, what laws I was breaking all the way along. And even as I entered into becoming a pastor and being called what I believe called by God to lead in a church, I find myself so often saying, some weeks is like, God, I don't know what I did this week. Did I do enough to, to warrant your love? And what I, what I do there is I slip into this idea that, you know, my, my works, what I'm doing, it, it's, it makes, it's necessary for you to love me. And so the idea of gift righteousness is that Jesus is sufficient and we receive. It doesn't mean that good works shouldn't flow out of our lives, but we receive the ultimate gift. 
The gospel is that you were so bad, I was so bad, that Jesus had to save you, okay? I don't know, there's a lot of messages out there that tell you that you are, you are good, okay? And I'm, I'm a big proponent of, like, understanding va- human value. But the gospel is this. The gospel is that you were so bad, Jesus had to save you. But he was so gracious that he was glad to save you. He's glad. He, he, even, I believe this, if you were the one person, he would have done it. He would have done all of this for the one. He loves you that much. And so the question I have is, will you choose confidence today? Instead of choosing all the other things that will keep you from God, will you choose confidence in your acceptance before God by rejecting any pride, by rejecting unbelief this morning? Anything that is hindering so that you might come confidently before God. And I know that reality, let's uh, invite our team up, that you might be here today and you might say, you know, I just need to pray over that. I know there's an area of pride. I know there is an area of unbelief in my life that is hindering me from walking closely with God. And you might, and so we're just going to invite you that if during our our time of worship, of singing and all this time, that we have a team that's going to come and pray with you. And the question I have is, do you have real confidence in your acceptance before God? And if you don't, would you come and receive prayer so that you might be able to articulate it, you might be able to confess it before God and receive the confidence that he intends for you to live your life? Let's pray. God, we come and we worship you today. We are asking for your presence among us in response now. Lord, I don't know what, uh, this is a, a word of scripture that I just went through this week and I was like, on, how on earth do I explain this to people? And I know in humanness, I, I just pray that you would bring clarity to some fumbling words sometimes. But I also pray, I know that your word is powerful, your spirit is powerful that you are working in this place now and that some of these pe- people, my own heart, this life, I needed it this week, that some people need to come and receive uh, prayer for areas of unbelief and areas of pride in their life. And so I ask God that you would work in our lives, that as we worship you, as you are declared great, that you are greater than all, we sing these words to you, that we would, make, uh, that we would come and just uh, declare things to you now. And we love you, God. And all of God's people said.